Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a software company that enables life science companies to augment their teams with the right expertise at the right time in order to accelerate and de-risk their development. I'm very excited to welcome RJ Tessie, the CEO of Immune Bio. Thanks for joining us today, RJ. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. So we'd love to just start off and learn a bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so thank you. So I was a uh, card-carrying transplant surgeon working in the 80s and 90s doing solid organ transplant, which was at the time the cutting edge of medicine. And then quite frankly, as solid organ transplant, and I was a liver, kidney, pancreas transplanter, and as, as transplant became part of mainstream medicine, I got frustrated by the fact that we were being forced to make decisions based on a number of factors, including factors under the control of the insurance companies and the hospital administration. And quite frankly, it wasn't the cutting edge anymore. So I got, I got basically wooed into biotech. At the time, I joined a little company called Sangstat Medical Corporation, which was, the, quote, the transplant company. And hence, that was my entry into the uh, field. For the last oh, almost 25 years, I've been in biotech. I've been in a series of uh, both public and private companies. In the most last decade, I've been starting up little companies and Immune Bio is the most recent company that we started in September of 2015. And we uh, went public in uh, 2019, February, and we're currently a NASDAQ listed company focused on the innate immune system. Awesome. Well, it certainly sounds like a quite a storied career spanning both medicine as well as biotech industry. You know, maybe to kick us off, we'd love it to learn more about Immune some of the ways in which you guys are approaching biotechnology, the unique perspective you have in the context of treating disease and, and some of the indications you guys are going after. We are, as I said, an immunology company. I think the best way to think about us is we target the dysfunction of the innate immune system and we harness that or normalize it for the treatment of diseases. And I emphasize diseases because, you know, we have only two platforms, but six programs. That is to say, we've got a dominant negative TNF platform, which is a very interesting program targeting a cytokine soluble TNF, which is important and we are using to manipulate the innate immune system. And we have a program targeting NK cells and the dysfunction of NK cells. But what's kind of interesting is that if we have six programs and two platforms, that means each one of those programs has, or platforms has multiple programs. And the DNTNF program platform is particularly unique because we have four programs and they are in completely different therapeutic silos. We have a CNS program, we have a cancer program, we have a metabolic disease program, which is NASH, and we have an infectious disease program, which is Queller for the treatment of complications of COVID-19. So it's very unusual when a company can take one drug and put it into that diverse set of diseases. And the reason we can do that is because we're targeting inflammation, we're targeting dysfunction of the innate immune system. And in fact, we don't really care what the name of the disease is because in many ways we're not treating the disease i.e. we're not treating Alzheimer's as much as we are treating microglial dysfunction. 
we're not treating cancer as much as we're treating the immunobiology of the tumor microenvironment. So we, in fact, think about our therapeutic programs as treating biology, i.e. targeting innate immune dysfunction, not targeting the disease, the name of the disease. And a good example of that is just think about breast cancer. You can say, well, I treat breast cancer, and anybody worth their salt is going to say, uh, what kind of breast cancer? Because, you know, when I was in medical school in 1982, there were two types of breast cancer, either hormone positive or hormone negative. Now there's five or six types of breast cancer, and we're beginning to slice and dice those indications more and more. That's going to be the same in Alzheimer's. It's going to be the same in many diseases. And, you know, treating biology gives the company a lot more flexibility than treating diseases. Wonderful. This certainly sounds like quite an interesting approach. Now, when you think about that concept of biology and its implication for a variety of diseases, you know, one could take it as a pathway, one could take it as a biological mechanism. Any specifics or scientific nuance or mode you think you could help guide the audience to in the context of identifying biological functions that permeate multiple diseases that aren't thought to be linked? Yeah. We start at the beginning. We start at the biology or, or actually the biology we're interested in is the biology that our drug manipulates, right? And then so we, we really, really understand the mechanism of action of our drug. I can remember when I, that when I was recruited out of academia into biotech, I was recruited guy by a guy by the name of David Winters, who at that time had been at Novartis. And this was a legendary guy in, in, in the pharma world. He was the guy that brought cyclosporin, which is a, a drug that is uh, used to treat transplants patients used to take back in the 80s and early 90s to, to help them keep their organs. And, and one thing he told me that really stuck, he said, you can never know too much about how your drug works. So we really, really understand how our drug works. And once you understand how it works, then you can say, okay, if, you're, if I'm manipulating this piece of biology, where does this piece of biology relevant, right? Now, a personal philosophy, and I'll emphasize that this is RJ Tessie speaking and not immune bio speaking, is that biologic systems, man, has only so many biologic tricks it can play. Let's say there's 500 bits of biology in our system. It keeps replaying that biology over and over again. I mean, look at cytokines. It's an area we know a lot about. You know, cytokines, the same cytokines play a role in the brain with microglial and astroglial activation. They play a role in the lung when you're talking about mast cells. They play a role in cancer when you're talking about MDSCs and what's going on with Tregs, et cetera, in the cancer. They play a role in asthma. They play a role in inflammatory bowel disease. So you've got one cytokine that's doing all these different things depending on the disease. But as you dig deeper and deeper, there's some common places where if, if you're smart, you can begin to see where you can attack that disease with the same drug that you want to use to treat inflammatory bowel disease that you may want to treat Alzheimer's disease. And that's exactly what we're doing. We have, by targeting a cytokine, soluble TNF, and it's not by the way, it's not a TNF inhibitor. It's much more complicated. Most people don't know there's more than one cytokine, TNF, and the, the difference between the current drugs and our drugs is precision. But I don't want to, you can go to our website and look at that. But the point is, from a clinical development point of view, or, or shall I say, from a strategic development point of view, we pick our therapeutic opportunities based on how well we can 
intervene in the biology. And it turns out you can use the same drug in a lot of very interesting different places. So that's why we have a program in CNS. And I can tell you, although we're, we're treating Alzheimer's disease, if you go to our web, website and look at one of the 70 publications we have on our website, you can come up with five or six other neurodegenerative diseases which are going to be on our hit list. We could be an autoimmune disease, but why do I want to meet with Amgen or AbbVie? So the bottom line is if you understand the biology, you can choose what areas you want to go after. And then in some ways, the world becomes your oyster. Great. Thanks, RJ. Uh, what you were describing made me think that, you know, the days of a one trick pony in biotech are, are long gone. And now the expectation certainly is that companies have to have multiple assets with a clear path to the clinic. Given the size of your team, are there any tips that you have for folks that are listening in terms of how to make sure that the team, A, remains focused and that you're focusing on the right things with multiple potential assets across various different therapeutic areas? Yeah, so I'm going to answer a couple things. First of all, I never understood why investors, you know, here you are, you're working day and night, you're working 24-7 and you're moving the ball forward. And they tell you you're not focused. It's like, guys, we're focused like a laser here. What they're worried about is because they don't understand it. They don't think you understand it. I can accept their thinking that if you're doing, you know, if, if the ratio of programs to people becomes too out of whack, they may be worried that you're not applying enough effort to a single program. But let me tell you what the downside of that is. On one hand, they'll say you're not focused enough. And then the other hand, they'll say, when are you going to give me some news, right? What's the news flow? And you're like, well, you just told me I'm doing too much, but then you want news flow. Those two are completely opposite situations. That is, if you have one program, let's, let's just say you have every program throws out one piece of news every six months, right? If you have one program, you're coming out with news every six months and your investors are going nuts. They're going like, what's going on? You're not giving me news. If you have two programs, you've got a piece of news every three months because you've got two six-month cycles going on. And then they're like, well, that's okay, but this, you're still pretty quiet. If you have three programs, you're throwing off news every two months. Now it gets pretty interesting, right? So the fact is you have to balance this this concept of focus with the reality if that you're not, particularly when you're a public company, this is a, it's not only a public company issue, but it, I think it's more, you can get punished more easily when you have stock is being traded than when you're not in the public markets. If you don't have enough news flow that's credible, and I'm not talking about, you know, company XYZ is going to present at a banking meeting, that's not news. I'm talking about value improving news. If you don't have enough news flow, you're going to get punished. And the only way you can have adequate news flow is having more than one program. So in fact, focus is important, but what's more important is execution. So they shouldn't be saying, are you focused enough? That what they should be saying is, are you executing well on the programs you have? And if you're not executing well, is it because you don't have the resources to execute well, or you're tilting at windmills? So in our case, we have, as some of our programs have begun to move forward more aggressively, we're starting to realign our resources to follow those programs forward. And it's not that we're abandoning programs, but we're just slowing them down a little bit because, you know, we have finite human and financial resources and we don't want, you know, at the end of the day, you need to be successful somewhere. That still means we have three programs going, 
you're never going to see me only having one program, but I'm not actively executing against our complete pipeline at this point. Cool. You know, one of the things I'm curious about though, is when you look at that balance between indications, biology, news flow, as you describe it right from an external perspective, one of the things that's often important is having different expertise at the table to facilitate prosecution of those programs, right? So I'm curious from a talent standpoint, how do you bring together the right team, whether it be dynamically with consultants and and CROs or uh, internal staff to manage those sort of programs uh, across a broad set of therapeutic areas? Great question. Well, there's two ways. One, you rent it, right? You, uh, You take advantage of vendors and thought leaders. I mean, we're lucky. This drug was in the hands of academics, or at least the DNTNF platform was in the hands of academics for a decade before we got into the clinic. And that's, I think when we started, when we got into the clinic, there were like 50 publications at our fingertips. And there were so many NTA, MTAs out there that it was like, breathtaking. And that's because this drug was so interesting to the academics that we didn't have to pay them to do stuff. We just had to give them the drug under a material transfer agreement and they would do the work because it was a real tool. So we were really lucky on this because we were dealing in such fascinating biology, right? As part of that process, you develop relationships with real thought leaders, real giants in the field. And so as we developed those relationships, now a lot of those were on the preclinical side, but many of the more senior preclinical academics have relationships with the people on the clinical side, and we just depend on them. One of the advantages of me being from an academic background on the front lines of the, of the transplant wars in, in the 80s and 90s is I understand how to talk to academics. I understand their language. I understand what they value. I come with just enough credibility that they don't roll their eyes and go, oh God, here comes another corporate gump. And the fact is, you know, when you allow them to put their imprint on a program, the program is better and you get their enthusiastic support. So it's really, uh, it's really all about managing people, managing both internal and external people on the inside you know, we're small enough, we've got selected good people and we let them have their head. I mean, in this company, man, if, you, if you're not an independent worker, you know, you're going to fail. You need to be able to say, okay, you know, where are we going? Where's the goal? You and I agree on the goal. And then I got other stuff to do. Just let me know when you're a quarter way there, halfway there and almost there. And that works very well if you pick your people well. Now, we got to have good partners. You know, one of the things that I always say when I'm interviewing vendors, whether it be a CRO or, you know, a manufacturing group or this or that, I say, look, one, if you cause me too much work, you're out of here. Two, if you don't make me better, you're out of here, right? In other words, you better teach me something I don't know in the next 15 minutes or I'm going somewhere else. Because if all you're telling me is things that I know, or if I've got to spend my time getting you up to speed on my programs, I don't have time for you. So I think you have to be a little bit of a, a nudge, a little bit of a pain when you're picking your partners. So you get the right partners. But once you find them, you embrace them and you don't let go of them because they become a critical part of your team. I mean, we're in the process of working with the FDA on our Queller IND. And, you know, to the credit of the FDA, you know, they're they're doing these INDs is kind of a rolling IND, right? It's not like the old days where they wait 30 days and then they put you on hold and say, fix this. With COVID-19, they're like, okay, you know, we want to get you into the clinic fast. 
this week, here's the problem you need to fix. Next week, there's a problem when you fix. But when you get a, a letter from an email from the FDA that says, we don't like your safety plan, this is what we don't like about it, you know, get us a new safety plan by tomorrow and we'll keep the process going. I mean, it becomes an all hands on deck moment. And in our case, with when we've, we've got our CRO, we've got some of our team in Australia, some of our team in, uh, in the UK, and some of our team in the US, you know, you're working across 21 time zones, right? Right. You get it done because we were able to get good people. Great, RJ. Shifting topics a bit, we're recording this in late August, and I believe today was the 48th biotech to go public this year already surpassing what happened in all of 2019. And you obviously made that decision to go public some time ago. Would love to hear about your mental model around continuing to raise venture financing versus accessing the public markets early on and how folks, how you'd encourage folks to think about making that decision in the early days. Yeah, so thanks. I mean, we did it a very different way. We, um, the founders decided from day one that we were only going to issue one class of stock, common stock, because we have watched with horror over the years as companies in an effort to capitalize themselves have, you know, issued prefer, issued warrants, issued unit deals. And what happens is you're only as good as your cap structure as you move forward. And, you know, you have to be very careful about trading a complicated cap structure for a few coins because that complicated capital structure is going to come back and bite you in a very big way. So when we made the decision from day one that we were only going to issue common stock, basically that eliminates about three-fourths of the early stage biotech investors, i.e. VCs. VCs will only invest in companies if preferred, full stop. So if you're not going to issue preferred, you don't even have to have a conversation with them because there's no reason for them to talk to you. So we did a, a friends and family round, which always kind of makes me laugh because my family isn't well healed enough to invest in my company and the, my friends don't trust me enough to invest in my companies, right? So it's not friends or families, but our CFO, David Moss, has a long history. He was a VC in his previous life and he has a long history in biotech financing. So he has relationships. And we were able to cobble together a friends and family round. And then we said, okay, we need to, one, get into the clinic, and two, then get on the public markets. Because at the end of the day, the cheapest way to finance a company is in the public markets. And when I mean cheap, I mean, I'm not talking about interest, but I'm talking about structure, right? So we had a few things happen that allowed us to do this. We did get the clinical trial um, started. We brought in a product that helped us meet the, shall we say, some of the criteria that the SEC puts in front of you so you can get on a NASDAQ. We did not want to end up on the, on the uh, Bolton board or the OTC market because you can get, that's a place where you can really get trapped. So we were able to do an IPO that was relatively ugly and successful. But the funny part about that is, you know, everybody likes to talk about, you know, who banked them. I can tell you, I've never met an investor that knew any of the banks that banked us and got our IPO. Because, you know, when you go to the bankers and you say, okay, I want you to, you know, do an IPO for us. And they go, oh, that's great. Tell us about your story. And they're like, oh, this is great science. They say, who are the VCs in the deal? And they go, you go, well, we don't want any, didn't, don't have any VCs because we didn't want to issue preferred stock. And they're like, 
Oh, well, who are the crossover funds? Well, we don't have any crossover funds because they want a preferred stock. And they're like, oh, so who are your investors? Well, there's Uncle Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and there's Ed Fish from, uh, from Chicago. And they're like, you know, I got, I got a golf date. I'll call you if I'm interested. And so what happens is you don't get the kind of high profile banking access that you want, that you covet, but you get public. And we got public. And now with our most recent raise, you know, we're banking with much better banks and we have even better banks calling us every day and they want our banking business. So we have gone through that ugly duckling phase and we've come out the other side. And the benefit of not having venture capitalists is one, founders and management and insiders still control the company. We own almost 50, insiders and management own almost 50% of the company. And that means we are able to drive the company towards what we think are the best places. And we're not working for the, for the venture capitalists. And furthermore, our investors are gonna be the one to enjoy the fruits of our labors. People that invested with us so far, they're going to ride that stock up. If you invest in an IPO from one of the big venture houses, the chances are they don't take that company public until all the value has been extracted. So the public markets in some ways don't have the opportunity to reap the benefits of that public offering. Anyway, the bottom line is we, we had some very difficult times. We often questioned whether we made the right decisions because it would have been easier to have venture capital. But at the end of the day, where we are today is in a great place. We've got more than a year of runway. We've got high quality banks that we're working with and higher quality banks that are trying to get to know us. And we have and management is still steering the ship. And that is a great place to be. Well, well, it certainly sounds like quite a roller coaster, as they say, right? Between uh, recruiting the right people, bringing in the right uh, bankers to help take you public, and obviously trying to get a drug to market. Certainly sounds like a lot of uh, interesting experiences, but hopefully all the better for patients at the end, right? You know, and that's, our, you know, one of the advantages of being a clinician is you kind of get it. You know, the only thing that matters is whether you make a difference at the bedside. If you make a difference at a bedside, everything works out. Patients benefit, clinical teams benefit, you benefit, and the investors benefit. That's all that matters. And I, this is once again, RJ Tessie speaking. I think there's a real difference in companies that are led by people with clinical backgrounds and clinical insight than those that come from a more of a business background. I mean, at the end of the day, you need both players. But, you know, I think having spent many years as a, on the front lines in medicine, that has imprinted the way I think it's in my DNA. And at the end of the day, when in doubt, do the right thing for the patient and you'll have done the right thing. That's great. Well, I think on that note, really positive, I think um, strong message to send to the audience here today. RJ, want to thank you for joining us on the podcast and sharing uh, a little bit both about your background, immune, as well as sort of uh, some good advice for entrepreneurs and executives who hope to uh, also bring drugs to patients in the future. Looking forward to having you on again soon. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.